Hello and welcome to the Writing Your Best Self podcast with me, Georgina Elmashady. Journaling is an incredible self-improvement practice that will help you cultivate the introspection and self-awareness you need to become your best self. Each week, we explore tried and tested techniques along with journaling prompts to help you dig deeper into yourself so you can leverage the wisdom within to achieve your biggest goals and create your best life. Let's get writing. Hey everyone, welcome back. I am super excited today because this is another episode in our interview series and I am super excited to introduce you to Suzanne Goldstein. Now, Suzanne is a transformation and success coach. She's also a social entrepreneur and a filmmaker. And she's someone who's been coaching and consulting at many levels for over 30 years. Now, what really inspired me about Suzanne is her incredible story of transformation. Now, as you're going to hear in this week's episode, Suzanne's been on this beautiful journey of constantly reinventing herself and consistently elevating her herself and her life to the next level. And this is something that she empowers other people to do through the Dare Human framework. So Dare Human, its mission is all about cracking open your consciousness, fortifying your emotional intelligence and activating your authentic purpose so that you can get things done and really create the best life you possibly can. Suzanne is a powerful manifester. She's taken some really bold moves to create the experiences and outcomes that she desires. And I just found this so inspiring. Um, We had the most powerful conversation, like a really beautiful conversation that I took so much away from. She really made me think, and I just know that you're going to get so much from this episode too. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Suzanne, and I hope you enjoy this interview and this episode as much as I did. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am so excited to talk to you. Me too. I can't wait. I have so many things to talk about. And I just know this is going to be such a powerful conversation because we're going to be talking about transformation. I'd love to just start with a really open-ended question. Like what what does transformation mean to you and why is it such a key part of your life? Oh my goodness. That is such a beautiful question. So I have lived my life that it with the idea that I'm constantly in transformation and constantly in growth and that everything that I run into in my life is something that if I desire to do it, I can go do it. I just need to go do it. And I see things that I want to do or try or people that I meet. And I, I just made a decision in my life that it's going to happen. And so what happened for my career is that I started realizing that I could be who exactly I wanted to be. And the transformations became so powerful for me. I became a new who as a result of them. The things that I was doing created a new who for me. And so I actually started versioning myself like software. So I could keep track of where I was and who I've become. Oh my gosh, I love that. And I have to dive into this knowing that you seem to have, this knowing that it's going to happen. How do you get yourself, like, how do you navigate into a position where you can live with that much confidence in yourself and in life? So it's not that there's not fear. So I think there's just the difference between, for me, a desire or almost an obsession to do the thing that I've decided I want to do and continuing to walk despite the fear. 
So what happens is like, I will make a decision or I'll decide I'm going to pursue something and I'll, I'll start embodying it in such a big way that I'll make things happen. I'll tell you a very brief story. If you want me to go into detail about it, I can, but this has to do with your home country. Um, When I first got out of college, um, university, my parents um, had really wanted me to be an engineer. I was trained in both mechanical engineering and theater and film. And I wanted to go into being the arts and I wanted to use the arts to make the world a better place and, you know, send messages to people and teach people things. And my parents were like, Suzanne, you're one of very few female engineers. This is back in the early 80s and or mid 80s. And, you know, you really should go interview on campus and be part of this whole network of people that are hiring engineers and everybody's going to want you because you're a female engineer. And I'm like, no, I can't do it. That's not what I'm meant to do in this lifetime. And they're like, oh, you should. And I, and my dad said a very important question to me. He said, are you ready to look for a job for the rest of your life? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, I am. Well, that was like this flame underneath me because now I have promised my folks that I was going to be ready to look for a job for the rest of my life, which is essentially what it is being in the arts. And, you know, here in the entrepreneurial space, it's creating constantly for ourselves. And um, so I wanted to work in London and I wanted to work at the National Theatre of Great Britain. I decided if I was going to work in theatre, I wanted to be at the best theatre in the whole world. So I headed to London without a clue. There was no job. This was pre-internet, pre-email, pre-everything. I was like, how the heck am I going to get a job at the National Theatre of Great Britain? I know nobody. So I went there. I went to London. I found myself a flat. I used my bat mitzvah money. (laughs) For those of you who know what a bat mitzvah is, it's like the Jewish rite of passage. And I had gotten a lot of gifts of money at that time. And I used my bat mitzvah money to pay for my apartment in London. It was cheap back then. And one day I grabbed my backpack and I was like, okay, if I want a job at the National Theater, what should I bring with me to show people that I can do this? And I had brought over a bunch of stuff with me. I brought from the US, I had brought some drawings I had done of this solar house that I designed because I was like, if you're in the theater, you have to be able to design things. And I brought over an analysis of an Arthur Miller play I'd written. So I put this stuff in my backpack and I head over to the National Theater and I walk up to the backstage door and I walk in and I walk up to the desk and I'm this brash American with this big blonde hair. And I go up to the counter and I was like, hi, my name's Suzanne Goldstein. I just graduated university in the United States and I'd like to work here at the National Theater. Do you have somebody who'd be willing to talk to me? And you know, British people. So (laughs) this woman behind the desk was like, she had no clue what had just showed up in front of her. <laughs> and I, and she's like, um, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, I don't. But I'd really like to talk to someone about working here. And she's like, well, we're rather busy right now. Would you mind coming back another time? And I said, well, if you don't mind, I'd like to wait. I don't know where I got this idea, but I was like, I'm here at the National. Maybe I can get somebody to talk to me. So I sat in the lobby. And the day was going by and people were coming in and out of doors and, and I'm watching this woman and every once in a while I'd catch her eye and she'd, you know, shake her head like there's nobody for me to talk to. And so I started reading pamphlets that were in, and on the wall. And then at the end of the day, she says to me, well, sorry, I couldn't help you today. 
So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do now? Like the, I blew my chance in the National Theater. So the next day I went back again. And I did this for eight straight days until what I call my Hanukkah miracle. And on the eighth day, I had spent those seven other days befriending the people who worked behind the desk. I'd bring them tea or I'd bring them a sweet cake. Um, and I'd, I'd ask them when it was quiet, who was that who just walked by? And I, you know, it's like, what? That was Sir Peter Hall. Are you kidding me? Or, you know, Sir Alan Akeborn, all these people were walking by and I just kept getting more and more and more excited and more convinced that I was going to work at the National. And so I sat there. And then on the eighth day, I called my Hanukkah miracle. She said, I have someone who's willing to talk to you. And I was like, what? This is exciting. And there was these big two double doors. I'll never forget it. And those are the doors I'd been staring at as people were coming in and out of them, you know, for these eight days. And all of a sudden, the doors open. And it's like, oh, the National Theater's doors are open to me. And I went in. And there was a gentleman who ran the Cottesloe stage, which is the small experimental stage at the National. And uh, he was their production manager. And he's like, so I'm meeting with you. And I hear you've been here trying to get a job. Who are you? What are you doing here? And I talked to him a little bit. And he's like, well, do you have any experience in theater? Like, do you know anything? And I was like, pulled out my Arthur Miller analysis play. And it turns out they were about to do an Arthur Miller play called A View from the Bridge, which was going to be directed by Alan Acorn, who I'd seen walk by. And, you know, very comedic director taking on Arthur Miller's very serious play. So I could speak to this. And then, uh, you know, he asked if I knew anything about mechanical drafting, because that's what need that they had. And I was trained as a mechanical engineer. And I showed him the drafting that I brought with me. And he looked at me, he's like, you're hired. And it was this moment in time that I didn't know what I was doing. I think, honestly, I was that driven because I was trying to prove to my dad <laughs> that, I could, that I could look for a job for the rest of my life and I could get it. Um, and that's how the transformation of everything began. Oh my gosh, what an amazing story. And I love that analogy of like the doors literally opening because I mean, that's such a metaphor in itself. But I'm, I'm just really curious because you said something near the beginning of the story where you were saying yeah. about, you thought about who you needed to be to be able to do this job. And then you very intentionally chose these two things to take with you. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about this notion of embodying the person you need to be to achieve the things and the role that plays in, in helping the transformation take place? I think that's a beautiful question. So let me see. The thing that I think I've embodied every time I've reinvented myself and, and I've reinvented myself from the theater world to the film business, from the film business to the technology sector, doing dot-com work at the beginning of that era to, you know, I've done a lot of different things. And what I have realized is that each time you what I call reinvent myself, transform myself, there are certain attributes of the world that I'm looking to get into. Mm -hmm. And I often say like, what does it mean to be a great person? And, it's, and the answer is, it depends. Like if you're going to be a great person who works at a soup kitchen, feeding houseless people and hungry people, you have to have a certain character, a certain demeanor, a certain way of being in the world. And if you wanted to be a corporate attorney 
you have to have a different set of greatness, right? You have to be laser sharp. You have to, you know, be able to argue a case. So greatness depends on the situation where you're going. Mm -hmm. And what I would do is I would just say, what is going to be great in this arena? Who do I need to be to match the people who are already in this arena? Right. So it's almost like an awareness of the context that you're wanting to step into and then intentionally embodying those, the, those aspects so that you, you already belong before you've even tried to belong, as it were. Yeah, and even if you don't necessarily feel like 100% that you belong, you're infusing yourself with a desire to belong. So I'll tell you another quick story. It's how I broke into the dot-com world, um, which is crazy because I had been making movies in Los Angeles and and I'd started doing some stuff in interactive television when that first came out in 1993. I was working at Silicon Graphics as a consultant and the web came out. 1994, Mozilla was the very first web browser. There were very few people doing stuff in this thing then called new media and I was living in LA. I had a boyfriend in San Francisco that I was back and forth because I had met him at Silicon Graphics. And he handed me an article from the San Francisco Chronicle and said, here's the new people, the top 10 people who are working in new media. And I was like, that looks like a cool thing. Like the internet is a cool thing. It's flattening the world so more people can get access to information. Information is power. I want to be part of that. So I had to figure out how to be part of that, even though I knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I literally called every single one of the people in the article from the Chronicle. I was terrified. I had no idea what I was going to say to these people. But then I just was like, my desire is bigger than my fear. Can you say that again? Your desire was bigger than your fear. My desire is bigger than my fear. Right. And so I keep going, even though the fear is there, it's walking right with me. So I'd pick up the phone and I'd make a phone call. I say, hi, I read about you in the Chronicle, which of course makes people feel good. And I'd say, you know, would you be willing to get together with me for five minutes? I'd love to learn about what you do. And like, I'm really interested in this new field. And back then, everybody who was working in the dot-com world, which was very nascent, um, they knew it was a movement. It was a social movement. So people were open. It wasn't like, it wasn't competitive. And so all 10 of those people met with me. Wow. And so I have developed this technique of listening to people. Because if you listen to someone, they think you're wonderful. You ask questions about themselves. You are interested in who they are as a human. Well, what it does is it gives you information about the field that you're interested in going. If you meet 10 people in a brand new field and you ask them the three cool questions that you can think of, you can start triangulating on what is the greatness in that field. And then you can start learning to talk the talk, even when you don't know it. So I just constantly do that to reinvent myself. And are you ever, are you ever afraid of... Like, because it, you know, the direction you just explained, like the way your path has gone, like they're very, it's almost like a disjointed path because there doesn't seem to be, you know, from the first glance, there's not a seamless link from one to the other. So are you ever afraid of like almost closing the door on one thing and then starting completely afresh? Like, how, how do you navigate that? I'm always afraid. 
but that doesn't stop me. And I think this is the difference is that some people, their fear is paralyzing. And for me, I don't let my fear paralyze me. And so what I do is I, I first of all, I love humans. I, I love people. So, and, and you're going to really like fall over when I say this. I'm actually very introverted. I'm very shy in certain situations. Now, if you invited me to a dinner party and you're the only person I knew, I'd probably end up in the kitchen doing the dishes <laughs> because I'm shy socially. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to changing the world, there is nothing that I am shy about. And so when I, in, when I reinvented myself into the film business, it's another story of how I wrote fan letters to every director in the UK that I could find. I would watch a movie that they had written, excuse me, that they had directed. I would write them an, a letter and I would say, you know, I'm a fan, especially this movie when this thing happened. And how did you conceive of that? I can't wait to learn. By the way, I'm going to be in London um, for such and such a date to go to a friend's wedding. I would love to meet you if you'd be open to it. And lots of people wrote me back from the UK because they're polite and said, no, we don't have anything. And then this is another one of those crazy stories. I was flying back to London to go to this wedding. And the whole time on the plane, I'm like, shoot, I don't have any meetings set up, but I know it's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And I got off the plane in London and my, my boyfriend then picked me up and he's like, I'm so happy to see you. And I'm like, did anybody call? Did anybody call? Like, I, I, I'm waiting. Someone's going to call me. I feel it. And I stayed excited through the fear because that's what the universe is looking for. The universe wants us to step into things. We go first and the universe is like, oh, that's the direction you want to go? Let me give you some tailwind so you can fly forward. So I remember this time in London, uh, we went out to go get a hat because when you are in the UK and you're an American girl and you're going to a wedding, you need a hat. And I didn't have hats. So we went out to a hat store and we get back and there's a voicemail and it's from John Schlesinger's office, Academy Award winning director of Midnight Cowboy, Marathon Man, Sunday Bloody Sunday. I mean, this is a big director. And his office had called and said, "Um, I understand you're in town for a wedding. John would love to meet you. I'm like, what? Now, remember all the things I did before this to make this happen. I I watched 100 movies. I wrote 100 letters. Like I set up the circumstances by which something is going to manifest for me. Because I believe that manifestation is belief above everything and hard work to go with it in the direction of your belief. When your beliefs, your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions line up, you manifest. But most people think that manifesting is like, I'm going to meditate. I may journal a bit. I know you're really into journaling. Journaling is powerful because you get your thoughts in order. You work through your belief system. You work through your doubts. And then beyond that is work. you got to do the work. I love how you there about like creating the circumstances for something to happen. And like the story you've just told me, it's an amazing story. I'm sat here almost open mouth because it's just so like, whoa, that's just incredible. And it's very easy to think, oh, that was a stroke of luck. But yes, it was. But no, it wasn't because behind the scenes, you'd done all this prep before. You'd held the energy. 
you knew something was going to happen. You didn't give up on yourself. You didn't give up on the opportunity you were you were stepping into. And then yeah. that door opened again. So I call this whole concept that I use um, painting doorways. Painting so the idea is this, everywhere I want to go, anybody I want to meet, I think about what it's going to take to get into that situation. And then I open up this imaginary bucket of paint that I carry with me everywhere I go. And I grab my imaginary paintbrush and I paint a doorway. And then I open the doorway and I do what I call create an opportunity for something lucky to happen. So luck doesn't just happen. Luck is, you know, when opportunity meets hard work. So the opening of the door is the creating of the opportunity. So in order for me to write all these letters to these directors in the UK, that's the opening of the door. I painted a doorway to each one of them and opened the door. But behind all of that was the work of getting ready to open the door, watching their movies, writing a personal letter, mailing the personal letters, sitting in the vibes of like, somebody's got to reach out to me. So I went to John's house and his butler answered and took me back into his studio room and we sat and talked and John, he's passed away. You know, he's an extraordinary man. He kind of looked like a devilish version of Santa Claus. And, um, he was such a kind, sweet soul. And we started talking about this movie that he was doing with Shirley MacLaine. It's called Madame Susatska. And it was going to be shooting starting in a month or so. And he was looking for an assistant, which is the exact job I wanted because I wanted to be a director at the time. And he tells me that it's about classical piano. And he says, do you know anything about classical piano? Well, there's a piano sitting on the other side of the room. And I said, looked at it and he was like do you mind and he's like no so I walked over to the piano my parents had forced me to take piano lessons when I was a kid and then I loved it and I sat and I played Moonlight Sonata for him by Beethoven and he hired me on the spot so there was some work involved in this that I didn't even know was going to lead to this moment which is all those times I fought my parents about practicing the piano but all of a sudden, I, packed, I, I knew this song. I played it for John. I got hired to work on a big movie as his assistant. Oh, my God. I've got, like, goosebumps listening to this. <laughs> and I just, I love the fact that you mentioned the story of your parents and the piano, because this is a cool thing, isn't it, is we create these dots throughout our lives, and we never quite know, like Steve Jobs said this, we never quite know when those dots are going to join up. we just got to hope that they do in hindsight. And I love yeah. that moment you can just see the path and how it led to this point I mean that must have felt amazing yeah for sure and I am definitely a lily pad jumper Steve Jobs also called these lily pads like you jump from one to the other and you asked me earlier does it feel weird or scary to leave one thing and go to the next and for me it's never a leaving because I carry with me everything that I learned. So when I eventually broke into Hollywood, which is another crazy story of how I did that, and I produced my first movie when I was 27, and then I decided at, I can't remember what age it was, probably 30, that I was going to leave the film industry. And everybody in the film industry is like, what are you doing? You've been successful. Why would you possibly step away? And for me, it's because I started making movies to be a Steven Spielberg, just like in theater. I wanted to use it as a vehicle for social change. I was at Disney. I was making kind of crappy family fare. It wasn't movies that I felt passionate about. And at the time, this was the 
early 90s, I I didn't like the vibe of the people in Hollywood at the time. I think it's very different now. But back then, there was just a lot of yuck, not a lot of consciousness. And there was this new thing burgeoning, this internet thing. And it felt for me like an awesome opportunity mm-hmm. to use storytelling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with my design architecture background. And so I became one of the first interaction designers on the internet. Wow. So I wasn't leaving anything behind. I was just adding. Yeah, it's almost like one step preparing for the next and the next. And I mean, you mentioned at the beginning about how you were always upgrading yourself. And it, as you explained it now, it just makes perfect sense. Like this was a natural upgrade and also exactly. stepping into this new space. Exactly. You think about your phone and your phone every once in a while, it says to you, you're due for an upgrade, right? It's like there's new operating system and the new operating system is going to let you do this thing. I literally just uploaded, uh, excuse me, updated my iPhone two days ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding all these new little tools and apps that they've added to the interface. I'm like, well, that's when I add a skill or I add a knowing or I add a new person in my life. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing for me is every single thing I've ever done I have one person I took with me on the journey of my life. So if I was at a company consulting at one point, there's one person I pulled with me and I became friends with that person and we went, moved forward in life together. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. I mean, listen, there, there's a lot of hard things that have happened in my life and I don't want to make it all seem simple. That's not the point of the conversation, but because I had a really pretty rough start to life and I had to deal with a lot of chronic PTSD and chronic depression through this. But what I realized is that, again, my desire was greater than my fear. I, I would really love to dive deeper into this because what, the, way you're, the, the way I'm perceiving you is someone who has just incredible amounts of courage and bravery and self-belief that you can move forward in that way, in the way that you have with so much belief. And it's, it's really inspiring. And I'd love to know how much of that is just who you are and how much of that can someone cultivate? And if you can cultivate it, how do you do it? So I think, let me just think, and no one's ever asked me this question before, so that's awesome. Let me just think about it for one second. So I'm going to answer this in a way that's probably unexpected. First and foremost, yes, it can be cultivated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I teach it in a lot of my Dare Human programs. Um, I think that my motivation at the beginning of my life was very different than my motivation now. When I was a person who was fairly broken, there was a huge part of me that was thinking whether it was correct or incorrect, that if I could just be successful at this, people would love me. Mm -hmm. If I could just write a best-selling book, people would love me. My family would love me. People close to me would love me. Like there was a massive disconnect between my self-worth and my accomplishments. And so I think part of my drive came from trying to earn people's love. Now, when I started doing personal development work and I started healing myself, that became different. And the motivators became stronger because it was now for me instead of for others. 
And when I do things for me first, what I realize is that I get to be happy through the experience of the accomplishment. That's a beautiful answer. Thank so you. this notion about, it feels like you're saying there's this shift from going from almost external validation to that internal validation and how that changes everything in the sense of how you see yourself, how you show up, those kind mm-hmm. of things. Yeah, I think that, you know, look, we all have challenges that have happened in our lives. I had some big ones, some big health challenges and some big, you know, let's just say some things that people face that are dark and difficult. Mm-hmm. And what happened for me is that my self-esteem was basically in the toilet mm-hmm. and I didn't believe in myself. Now, it sounds funny to say, because I was out accomplishing these huge things. We just spent the past whatever minutes talking about all these incredible things I've done, and they're all amazing. And I also have failed at many things, which I'm also happy to share with you, because I think the failures are important as well as the wins. For me, what happened is I actually bifurcated myself at one point, not intentionally, but I kind of became this person who I called me. And this other person who I called the other Suzanne, the other Suzanne was this badass woman who's out there crushing it, doing anything she desired, walking past the fear, accomplishing amazing things. But then I might get home at night by myself and I had no self-worth. I didn't know anything about boundaries. I had all kinds of boundary crosses in my life. I kept dating abusive men because it's a habit that I had created. And so what happened is the accomplishments were all directed. It's like from the other Suzanne. And I remember specifically, there was this one day. It was this beautiful, warm summer day in Boston. And there's this main street um, where all the nice shops are. And I was walking down the street and I saw this woman on the other side of the street. She had this fantastic dress on. She had this long flowy hair. She looked happy. She was kind of like walking with some kind of beautiful way. And I watched her and I was like, oh my God, why can't I be like that? I want to be like that. And it took me a while, but at a certain point I realized that the person I was watching on the other side of the street was me. And I had literally bifurcated my personality, not in a medical sense, but this was a coping mechanism. It was a survival strategy for me. Mm. And Suzanne, the other Suzanne, was this amazing woman who wore pretty dresses and walked down the street and had a ball. And I was observing myself from the other side of the street. I had kind of like trans, what's that word? Translocated myself to look at myself walking down the street And it was the first time I had done that. And I seen that I was a positive view because before that I would see myself and I'd say, "Mm -mm, she's no good. And so I started the work of bringing these two sides of me together, healing the one that was hurt and broken and accepting the one that was fabulous because I hated her. Me hated the other Suzanne. Thought I was, I thought she was fake. I thought she was out to show people up. But what it turns out is that me was needy. 
because I never had learned all the things I needed to learn to take care of myself. So it was a really interesting journey to bring these two sides of myself together. And then the way I go about things now is in a way more integrated fashion than it ever was before. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story. What a, what a beautiful story. And just that contrast is so powerful that on, on the one side, you can be really successful and on the inside, not acknowledge your own success and like how destructive and detrimental that is and how it even, and the success is never enough if inside you feel that you're not worthy of it. But what an amazing trans- transformation again to be able yeah. to create those two parts of you and really see yourself for who you really are. That's- and realizing that the value doesn't come from other people telling me I'm valuable. How did you make that shift? How did you make that shift? That was a long process. I always say it's a process, not an event. Right. When you decide to change something in your life, it is not a process. It is a process, not an event. So when when we decide to change ourselves, there's there's three levels of this transformation. Right. The first one is the information. So you get the information that something is available. You get the information that here's a thing you can learn. Here's a tool you can use. I remember learning boundaries. I was way older than most people when I learned boundaries. I had none. I had boundary crossers my whole life all over the place. I didn't know how to stand up for myself. I didn't know how to stop someone from yelling at me or or just leave the room. I just didn't. I was very sensitive. And so the information reception was that someone told me, hey, you need stronger boundaries. And I'm like, what the heck's a boundary? So there was the information. I got the information. And this is actually a therapist I was working with. And he said to me, I want you to go do research on medieval kingdoms. Like, what? (laughs) Why would I? do research on medieval kingdoms to learn about boundaries. It's like, just go do it, okay? Learn about the geography. How do they work? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, you're the therapist. I'm going to just like do it. So I went and I started doing research about medieval kingdom, how they were formed and how it was like a big land with like a rock wall around it. And there was a guard and there was a gate. And then there was another, when you come into the village, there's another wood wall and it's got a gate and a guard and you got to get permission to go in and even when you get into the near the palace, there's a moat. You can't just like walk into the palace. And once you're across the moat, you still can't just go walk in and be the room of the king or the queen. And all of a sudden I went to talk to him and I drawn these circles of my life and I started putting people in the circles, like the people that were close to me and the people that I really didn't want close to me or didn't treat me well, I put them in farther circles. So this was the beginning of my transformation. The first part is information. The second part is the transformation we take ourselves through. And I remember going to my dad and I had drawn these circles and I showed it to him like, dad, look what I did. I'm learning boundaries. And he looked at the chart I had written and all of the people who were closest to me, my mom, my dad, my good friends, they were in the same circle in the center with me. And he said to me, this is beautiful, Suzanne, but you forgot the circle around yourself. And until that moment, it hadn't occurred to me that I could have a circle around myself. So this is the transformation that we go through. And at a certain point, the transformation goes deep enough that we can integrate it into who we are. So I was literally on the phone call with someone the other day, and they were talking to me in a way that was not okay for me. And I said, I'm so happy to have this conversation when you can come at it from a different tone. But I can't do this this way. And I 
not going to do this this way. And I could set a boundary, but it took me years to figure out how to do it. And I didn't, wasn't taught it as part of my growing up. So I didn't know what it was. So when we choose a transformation in our lives, it's getting the information and doing something with it, integrated in some way so that the integration can last and it becomes your way of doing things as opposed to something that's an afterthought. Wow. That, thanks for sharing that three-step process. That's, that's really helpful to, to, that's really, that's really helpful to know. And what I'm also kind of getting from what you're saying is when we're talking about transformation. It's not just changing what you're doing. Like it's very obvious now. It's also changing who you're being. And is there a relationship between those two? Change what you do, change who you be, change who you be, change what you do. Like how, how does, how's that showing up in your life? Mm, that's a really cool question. So it's funny. I, I often am looking for the next thing that is igniting me. And the way that I think I get there is that I see something. I see a problem I want to solve. I, I see a place I want to go. I see a thing I want to try. I have an inkling, a creative moment that comes through me. I'm a generator in human design. Like I get high on the creation process. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we choose to take on something new, there's an entire belief system that we have to shift about ourselves. We have to believe it's possible. Mm -hmm. We have to believe that you can figure it out. And you have to believe that you're going to live through it and be okay, whether or not you, you do it successfully. So if you have these beliefs, you're willing to try. But what stops most people from actually choosing to transform their life, to change even the simplest thing, is the fear that it's not going to work. Or sometimes for some people, the fear that it will work because then they don't know what to do. So everything that I've done in my life always feels like a natural next step for me. In fact, I've been in periods of my life where the next new thing wasn't coming. And a person like me is very bad in boredom. I love to use, I don't know if you know, Abraham Hicks emotional guidance scale. Mm -hmm. um, but on the guidance scale, it's 22 emotions uh, that go from very, very high vibe, high, fast vibe energy, like joy, appreciation, positive expectation, down to number 22, which is grief, lack of self-worth, um, uh, you know, bad thoughts. And... Um, on number eight on the scale is boredom. And, and what you notice looking at the Abraham Hicks emotional guidance scale is below eight, everything is a negative emotion. They get more and more negative as you go down the scale energetically. And then as you lift above eight, they are positive. And for a person like me, being at boredom is really a bad idea because the ambiguity doesn't give me something to connect to, to build, to create. And I know that when I'm in one of those periods of time and I'm like, where is the next cool thing I'm going to do? When I try to force it, it never works. Right. I have to wait for the thing to come forward that I'm going to be so obsessed with. Mm -hmm. And I say obsessed in the positive sense, not the 
dangerous ones. <laughs> but I'm going to be so obsessed with it that I want to make it happen. But if I try to say to myself, oh, shoot, Suzanne, you need some new clients, go do this thing because it's the right thing to do. You should do this. What happens always is I fail miserably or I get myself in a situation where I, I, the energy is draining instead of lifting. And so I've, I call this process, actually, it's funny, I call it um, putting down the crowbar. Mm -hmm. So often, you know, if you've ever seen a TV show, like one of those cops shows where they're at the dock and it's really dark and like there's some nefarious looking guys who are moving around and there's some big wooden crates and the FBI or whatever service you have is like about to take them down and they come and they, they arrest all the guys and they take out a big crowbar and they're crowbar opening one of these big wooden crates and they find, you know, illegal things in there, whether it's drugs or guns or, you know, this is what happens in these TV shows. Well, the crowbar, this idea that you have to force something either open for your, like, I don't know if you've ever had this situation, but like sometimes you crowbar yourself into a relationship, right? Oh, this person has all the right check marks. They seem like they'd be a good match for me. And you try to make it fit. You try like, oh, but, but we're perfect on paper. Well, yeah, but that doesn't translate. And when you're trying to force something to happen, the energy doesn't follow. The power versus force paradigm mm -hmm. is so strong then. So what I try to do is avoid moments in my life where I'm forcing things because it never works. How, how do you, so how do you do that then? How do you, how do you stay so inspired and not be in that place where you feel you have to force things? Like, what are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis to just be so alive in the way that you are? Well, I mean, I'm not always as alive as I am right now, though I try to be. Mm -hmm. um, I um, had a period last week where I was, I just launched a new program and it's up and running. And I had launched right before that a new year long program and it's up and running. And these things were extremely exciting. And then the low came. Right. The low always comes. And the question is, how do you navigate the low? Because you're like, oh, man, I didn't go as well as I wanted to. I didn't get as many people into the program as I wanted to. I didn't. All the didn't, shouldn't, would ups, right? They come. And then you have to, like, really work with yourself to take your, give yourself some grace and work through it. But then I got to the other side of it. And I'm like, now what? I don't have another thing launching until May. So what am I doing with myself? Like, I feel like I need to create something. But I didn't know what to create. So I spent a couple of days a little bit agitated, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the creation to come through, thinking about things and watching the world and thinking what the people in my world are interested in learning, like really listening, what questions they were asking me, what group, what questions was I getting in my group that people were saying, Hey, how do you do this? Or how did you make it through that? So all of a sudden the idea came to me that I was going to take a quantum leap for myself. That this idea that I was sitting and waiting to figure out what was going to happen next and not feeling like I had enough vehicles for money to come in. I was like, well, you're going to decide today 
to do a leap quantumly. Do you know what quantum quantum mechanics and leaps are? Be great. If you could explain it, that would be fantastic. Please. Awesome. So in physics, in quantum mechanics, at the level of tiny little things like electrons and protons and bosons and all these tiny little pieces of energy that are the fabric of who we are on the planet and what the planet is, um, inside a molecule, inside a cell, we have all these little or an atom, excuse me, we have all these little things running around. Now, it turns out the protons can exist on different levels. Think of it as three balloons, one inside the other. So you have this middle balloon, excuse me, the center balloon, the middle balloon, and the outer balloon. There's three balloons. And most people believe that in order to get from one ring to the next, you actually have to move step by step by step through the space until you actually get to that next layer. But it turns out in quantum mechanics in the 1930s, we discovered that when an electron decides to move, it literally jumps from one state to the next. You can't see it. It just happens instantaneously. So we often think in order for me to be successful, I've got to just step by step by step by step by step. But it turns out there's another option which is that we just decide we're going to up-level and we do. So what I decided is that I was going to up-level and I invented a program called Quantum Leap to show people how I went from zero social media presence to where I am today in nine months and say, look, I can't teach you beyond what I've learned, but I can teach you this. Let me help you Quantum Leap. Let me shorten the time frame for you to get to what I've learned in nine months. And I did it in a pretty short period of time. So the quantum leap is, all right, let's go from here to here. Let's not worry about every step along the way. What if we just decide we're there? And then the energy follows. Wow. So you have to have a lot of strong power of the mind and power of connection to your belief system that it's possible because if we think about the quantum realm in general we live in this predictable world you and i were joking beforehand that like i have this beautiful scene behind me but if you look at the rest of my office it's a bit of a mess right now so we get to determine who we're going to be and what we're going to create around ourselves and in the quantum realm of predictability, this is exactly what you see. So I will say to you, you know, if we were talking tomorrow, what do you think my office looks like? And you'd say, well, you told me it's a mess outside of the camera. Therefore, it's, I can predict that it's a mess outside of the camera, right? But in the realm of possibility, my office being a mess and being neat both exist at the same time as well as being completely redecorated, as well as it's in Hawaii. All of these things exist in the quantum realm at the same exact moment. And we've proven this through quantum physics, that things can exist in two places at once. And therefore, in quantum theory or quantum spirituality, we realize that all of the possibilities are there. It's just they don't exist in our current predictable realm. So we keep picking things in our current predictable realm over and over again. All we get is predictable. But if we start believing that there's possibilities out there, we can start picking a possibility. 
Chris Pluckett bringing into our lives. Wow. The third realm in the quantum realm, which is called the predict, predict uh, excuse me, the realm of potentiality. And this is the realm where like you're walking down the street in your neighborhood and you see a house and you're like, God, I'd love to live there. And then you completely forget about it. And then one day that house becomes available for sale and you can afford it. And you're the first person who saw it. And suddenly that house is yours. So you didn't even actually work on it. Whereas the realm of possibility connects deeply to our power of manifestation. If it's possible, I can believe it can be true. Then I can align my thoughts, my feelings and take actions. My doingness is going to completely support my belief system in that thing that is possible. Which is exactly what the examples you gave earlier from your own life about opening the doors in the theatre and the I mean, breaking into the film industry, where exactly. in the in that playing in that realm of possibility, and then yeah. showing up in a way that you really believed it was a reality, and then yeah. it happened. Exactly. So you pick it out of the possible realm, you believe it fully, you start thinking thoughts that support it. You start having feelings that support it, and then you start acting on it. So even when I got on the plane to fly back to London, and there were, had no meetings set up on the other side, the whole flight, I was like, it's going to happen. I'm going to get a meeting with someone. I believe it. I feel it. I know something cool is going to happen. And so you're, you don't allow thoughts of, what if I fail? And if you do, you correct them really quickly, because there's this deep alignment that makes everything happen in our lives. That sounds like that takes a lot of self-belief and trust. That sounds like that's a skill in itself to be able to stay connected. Learning how to align for, for sure. Learning alignment mm-hmm. is, is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's discipline. Um, one of my favorite books is a book called um, Good to Great by a guy named Jim Collins. He's a Harvard professor. And he went to study leadership. And he said to his team, as we're doing all the research, this is the only thing I want you to know. I don't want, no, excuse me, it wasn't studying leadership. It was studying what makes companies go from good to great. He said to his team, I don't want you to come back and tell me it's because of the leader. It's got to be something about structurally in the company that allows them to grow to a certain level and then grow higher and then keep that high growth sustained, as opposed to many companies which grow and then they flatten out or drop. So he's like, let's go figure this out. And his team and he came back and the research really clearly pointed to two things. One was what he calls a level five leader. And a level five leader is someone who has all the amazing skills of leadership and management and vision and all the stuff that's important, but they also have humility. And the other thing that he said is that there's only three things that make any situation massively successful disciplined people having disciplined thoughts and taking disciplined actions mm-hmm. which is alignment mm-hmm. he wasn't a spiritual guy but that's alignment oh i love it that's that's so powerful it's such a powerful way to look at how to achieve things through the power of your thoughts and the way you show up that's there's so much to think about um so my next question i'm curious to know is there a point where you're going to stop wanting to transform and i guess my question here is around when is it when is it enough when when are you when you when are you when are you there 
do, 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 you, do, you hear, do you get my question is I do um what is the motivation I guess to to keep I want the world to be a kind gentle place where people are conscious and they care about other people and they've woken up and they realize that they can be part of the solution instead of part of the problem like that is a key motivator in my life and in my lifetime the chances of us getting to that place are small but instead of being despondent over that i've decided that every day i'm going to try to make a difference Show one person what it means to be kinder. Show one person what it means to wake up. Show one person what they're capable of. Show one person that they can make change in the world. And if I can do that, why would I ever stop? It's an amazing opportunity, even if I don't necessarily get paid for it. All right? Maybe someday I'm doing it in some other way. But... It is the reinvention of the creativity that keeps me alive. It's kind of like telling, a, asking a painter, mm-hmm. when will you stop painting? Or asking a writer like yourself, when will you stop writing? And even if you've t- retired, my guess is that you'd still write. Because writing is something that gives you great joy and motivation and all those things. So for me, creating and transforming gives me that kind of joy. It's your art. Like, it's my art. You have a real art to it. Like, I just. And that's why my book is called Carry a Paintbrush, How to Be the Artistic Director of Your Own Career, because it's an art. And I love how you almost bridge the, the science and the art as well. Like you, you seem to have a grip on both sides, the process and just the creativity and how those can align together for these quantum leaps. And you can thank, thank my parents for forcing me to go to engineering school. <laughs> how amazing that everything just is just tied together in such a beautiful way. It's, it's, wow. I feel very, very fortunate. Um, and I'm going to say something funny that mm, some people might not appreciate, but I feel like I deserve it. I, I worked so hard to get here. Not every day is perfect. There are days that I cry into my pillow like anybody else. But I came from a place where I had actually tried to take my life twice. And to know that I could get from there Despite my success, I still had that much Mm self-loathing to get from there to here and to be here on a consistent basis is my greatest accomplishment. Transforming myself on the inside is my greatest accomplishment. Yeah. 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 I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like sometimes the external things are great. Like this this proof, right. It's it's evidence of the things you've done, but you know, how you feel in here is yeah. It's a real mark of the, the progression and the transformation that you've created. And that's yeah. cool. So I, I have one last question, which a question I asked of my guests. So as we, we mentioned briefly that journaling is a good place to kind of dive into everything. And so mm-hmm. if someone wanted to kickstart a journey of transformation in their journal, what would mm-hmm. be a good question to start with? This is going to seem really obvious but people have such a hard time answering it. What do you want? What do you want? When I work with my private clients, I say to them, what do you want? Like, what do you mean? What do you want? Well, I I don't know. I mean, I want to be happy. Okay. What do you want? And asking that question 
makes you go deep about your desire. When we're not connected to our desire, mm-hmm. we feel like, you know, that expression, thank God it's Friday. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's like, can't wait for the weekend so they can not work because they don't like what they're doing. They're not engaged in what they're doing. It's not exciting. They like clock in and clock out of their job because they're not inspired by it. Well, what if I told you, you can be, do, or have anything you desire. It's all there in the realm of possibility. You just have to pluck it down and then create it. So when I say, what do you want? What do you want? What do you really want? And if what you really want is to go move to a Caribbean island, be a bartender, that's what you really want. And you're free enough to do that, go do it. If you're in a situation where you cannot go be a bartender in the Caribbean because you have you know, a partner or children or whatever, have the discussion. This is what I really want. Can we figure out a way to get this partially true? Can we go live in the Caribbean part of the year? Can we homeschool the kids so that we can go do this fun thing? I know people who literally live in vans and they drive around their country with their kids. They homeschool them in a van and explore the world and use the world as the schoolroom. They made that choice. That's what they wanted. So when we ask ourselves the question, what do you want? If you let yourself dream, what would it be? Oh my God, that's such a good question. And that question will be available as a download, everyone. So I really encourage you to dive into that. And I think that's a, it's a great way to tie things up as well. Because one of the things you said earlier was that you're able to be so courageous because your desire was bigger than your fear. So this notion of figuring out what you desire just sounds so powerful. Oh, I'm, I'm obsessed by that question. I can't wait to answer it myself. Yeah, um, I can't wait to hear your answer. And I'd love to tell us more about how we can work with you, Suzanne. If we want to find out more about who you are and what you do, where, where would be a good place to go check out? Uh, thank you so much for asking. So um, my main venue right now is Facebook, um, but I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, on Facebook, I have a community called Dare Human. And the Dare Human community is all about people who are really activated to make a difference in the world. And the world can be their family because their world. Um, it can be in your community. It can be in your city, your state, your province, your country, the world itself. It can be about the environment or child slavery, whatever the thing is that floats your boat, that makes you want to be an active, engaged member of society. Like we support you. And the way we do this is that we um, help you crack open your consciousness so you can see the world differently ignite that transformation process. We help you fortify your emotional foundation, connect deeply to your authentic purpose, and then help you understand by giving you coaching and connection and content and community that you can become a force for good in your world and in the world. So that's the Dare Human community on Facebook. You can literally go type Dare Human and you'll find us. And you just have to ask to get in, fill in the questions. And then Ariana, who's my community manager, will greet you. And, uh, and we'll welcome you into the community. We, I, we do three things a week that are live in the group. On Tuesdays, I, do, I host something called the Dare Human Dialogues, where I bring people from all over the world that I know to come talk about powerful stuff. And maybe you'll come on with me someday, Georgina. Um, and then on Wednesdays, I do a thing called ITK. It stands for In the Know. It's a current affairs show. 
So a lot of people in the world I'm in don't like to walk, watch the news. It's heavy. It's hard. It's confusing. It's people are ridiculous. So they don't like to watch it. Well, I'm a news junkie. So once a week, I summarize the news for everybody. And then once a week, we do a thing called the public square where I allow anybody who's part of my group to take the mic and they can talk about how they're trying to change the world. So that's something that happens in the group. Um, and that's all free. And I also offer free masterclasses in the group. Um, I just, I teach one called the art of manifestation, which is a lot about what we talk about. And the next one is starting, um, I want to say the next one is starting April 26th or something like that. And it's a free five-day program on manifestation. So I invite everybody to come and sign up for that for free. Um, and then I, you know, I work with people on a paid basis. So I have a bunch of different levels. I have this new program called Quantum Leap that is about the how to leap and how to get there the energetics of the how, as well as the doing of the how. Um, and then there's, uh, I have a year-long program called Soul on Fire. And it's about literally living with your soul on fire across every aspect of your life and what it means to truly ignite your passion and follow it full force. Um, I also do private coaching and intensives. And um, this is where I get to like really take my clients and we fly. It's, it's, you know, if soul on fire ignites you, then private coaching is the rocket ship. We will include all of those links in the show notes. They just sound amazing. I'm just, thank you for just sharing how we can, how we can work with you and get in touch with you and also sharing the masterclass. That sounds fantastic. Oh, and also on Instagram, I'm at at follow Suzanne. Sorry, I forgot. I will include that one too. Oh, Suzanne, this has been amazing. It's been such a powerful conversation. I'm, I'm so grateful for everything you shared. It's, it's just been magnificent. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. I'm so grateful to be here. You're such an amazing questioner. So thank you. Like you asked me some questions I've never been asked before. And that now you got my brain stimulated. Who knows what's going to come out of this conversation? I'm very happy to hear that. That makes me extremely happy. That was just. <laughs> amazing i i'm this is going to linger in me for a long time thank you so much. well i look forward to staying connected and i'm so grateful that you invited me to come thank you take care everyone so this is a wrap for this week's episode and i'll see you super soon take care